Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. And good morning again, Heights family. It's sure good to see all of you and be together on this Memorial Weekend. And as we're right in the middle of enjoying a great morning of worship, I do feel like I need to run back to last week and say, was that not a great day of worship with our youth leading us all throughout the church? So grateful for Will Lukowski, our youth pastor, and and all of our youth leaders and how they're pouring into their lives. And we certainly saw evidence of that last week. I tell you, somebody who went through a lot of youth Sundays, I can tell you they're very important, not only to growing you in your own love for the Lord, but even a love for His church. So very grateful for the job they did, so proud of the job they did last week. Okay, now back to this week. So today we're continuing in our series on the commandments. So far we've looked at the great commandment, which is actually two Somebody, hey, Jesus, what's, what's the big commandment? And he said, hey, it's to love God, but if I'm going to tell you that, i got to tell you the other one, love others, love your neighbor. And so now that we've looked at that, we're going to move into the Ten Commandments, and we're going to walk one by one through those for the, the bulk of this summer. You know, when we say Ten Commandments, you realize when you see that, when you look at that in Exodus chapter 20, you're probably looking at the most known, and I'm just going to use this in a very general term, religious writing. You're, you're probably looking at the most known religious writing in the history of humanity. Th- throughout history, across the nations, across the religions, there's probably nothing more recognizable than the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not suggesting we can all recite the Ten Commandments but we know them when we see them, right? We know what they are. We, we know what they're about. And some of us are old enough to remember seeing them a whole lot more than we see them today, right? We used to have them up in the post office and schools and government buildings, federal buildings. They're still in some of these places, but, but boy, the battle began, right? The, the, the battle to take them down, the battle to keep them up and 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 on we raged about what, whether they're uh, up or or down. You know, I, I was surprised to see that t- today, especially that uh, a recent poll actually showed that most of America is favorable to the Ten Commandments being posted, to to them being up. They're okay with that idea, even believe them to be relevant. Now that's the good news. The bad news is that percentage is going to drop like a rock because we're a culture that has embraced the idea that nothing is wrong except telling somebody that something is wrong. And guess what the thou shalt nots do? They kind of tend to do that. Now, I believe, and I'm sure a lot of you do, you're not surprised to hear me say, I believe there's value in posting them, not just for their content, but certainly for the content, right? I don't know. Think back over this last week, maybe there would be some value to our kids going into a school and every single day saying, thou shalt not murder. I don't think posting them would eradicate murder. We already know that when they were posted, there was murders. But I don't, I don't think it hurts that, that they see that. But it's not just the content, it's even the symbolism behind them. I mean, when you look at that, hey, there's a right and there's a wrong. 
That's important to see in a society that says there's no right and, and there's no wrong. But you know, we all need to recognize that as, as important it is to think about where they're posted and that battle for that, I think we would all acknowledge God is first and foremost interested in whether they're posted in our heart, right? Because if they're not posted here, it doesn't matter what wall that they're posted on. We need the Ten Commandments. They are a moral compass for our soul. They answer the question, how do I love God and how do I love others? Yes, again, Jesus, Jesus, when answering that question, hey, Jesus, what's the most important command? What's the most important thing I can do? What did he say? Hey, you need to love God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. A second is like it. A second is of equal importance. I can't mention the first without coming right behind it with this one. You can't separate it. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, that, that's, those are important statements, but then it should rise up, well, what's love look like? How, what, what is... I, I've never seen God. How do you, how do you, what does it mean to love God? What do I do, not do to show love to God? As a matter of fact, what do I do to love you? Do you realize every command in the Bible is answering that question? Here's what you do and don't do to love God, and here's what you do and don't do to love others. Every command in the Bible is summed up by the two, and all the commands of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, are an elaboration on the two. This is how we love. Now, of course, we, we live in a world that doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to see that there's a right and there's a wrong. And so we say, hey, our soul needs the rules. Well, now we're going to begin a debate about whose rules, right? Who, whose rules are we going to follow? I'm guessing most of us in here would say, well, let's go with the guy who owns the place. Maybe make our default rule the one who made everything. And, and, you know, uh, again, then we're going to debate who made everything, who owns the place. I'm going to assume today that most of us have settled that in our hearts. And, and for good reason, the faith, the science, the reality, all gives evidence to this. So you and I can move forward with tremendous confidence to live our faith. Oh, you know, there's another phrase we use all the time. Live our faith. What does that mean? How do you do that? Every single command defines what it looks like, what it means to live out your faith in every relationship, in every single situation of every day. It's, it's about love. It's about a relationship with God. So let's look at that. Let's remind ourselves of these great Ten Commandments. Turn with me today to Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, turn there in your Bible or Bible app, and you're probably going to want to mark this because we're going to be in this passage till the end of July. Uh, Now, we're going to look at a variety of passages throughout this summer, but this is always going to be our our launching pad. Exodus 20, and let me begin in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Okay, so let me stop right there. (laughs) Okay, so what God is about to say is not based on demands he makes of people trying to get into heaven. What he's about to say is not based on a need that he has. What he's about to say is based on his love. 
What he's about to say is based on what he's done for you. He rescued you out of Egypt and he freed you from slavery. Now, I know there's got to be at least one person here in their heart. They've got their hand raised. I've never been to Egypt. I'm not a slave. No, you don't need to have gone to Egypt. I assure you God has rescued you from sin, death, and hell. You've been freed from a a much greater taskmaster than a human. You've been freed from sin and death and hell. And it is out of what God has done for us. It's out of the love he's already shown that he then gives these commands. Chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We'll get to that word next week. God being jealous, is that good? I mean, I thought we weren't supposed to be jealous. Well, we're going to answer that next week. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. There is our Ten Commandments. Now, somewhere in the course of this series, I've got to answer some questions. I've got to talk about some things, not about a specific commandment, but the Ten as a whole. And that's going to be a little bit tricky to do when I need to use all my time to talk about the one commandment that we're looking at that day. But like one question that needs to be answered, a very important question is, what is my relationship to the Ten Commandments? You and I do not look to the Ten Commandments. We don't look to obedience to these commandments to find favor with God, to earn access into heaven to be declared righteous. We're not depending on that, and that's good news because we would fail, right? No, my faith, what I'm clinging to, is Jesus Christ. He kept the Ten Commandments for me, and then through his death, burial, and resurrection, paid for all the times and places I did not keep these commandments. So my relationship, what I cling to, is Christ. So in that relationship... What is the role of these commands? That seems like an important question, doesn't it? And I'm going to answer it. One of the Sundays between now and the end of July, you'll just have to, just have to be here every single Sunday to hear that question answered and find out when that's going to happen. Today, we're just talking about command number one. Very simply stated, very simply put, nothing 
before me. Nothing before me. God must have absolute primacy in our lives. Now, I I kind of address this. I I think it was in the introduction message or maybe the week after that. But I I, I asked this question. Is it just me or can that kind of sound self-centered, right? I mean, God's literally saying, I'm the center of the universe. Everything needs to revolve around me. I mean, normally if you and I heard somebody or saw somebody acting that way, we'd avoid them, right? We don't like hanging around people who think it's got to be all about me. But isn't that kind of what God is saying here? No. No. When you and I are doing that, that's operating out of our sin. When God's doing that, he's not operating out of any sin. As a matter of fact, would you believe that when God says that, that is a kindness and that is a goodness to you? Why? How's that being kind to me to tell me I've got to put God at the center of everything? Because you always put something at the center of everything. It's the way we're created, the way we're made. We all have a number one spot. You can call it the number one spot. You can call it the God spot. But we all have it, and we spend literally every second of our lives working on that God spot, working on that number one spot. We're always, it's not something we do just once. We're always moving people, ideas, things in and out of that spot. And they're the wrong things if they're not God, right? I mean, if if it's not God, it's the wrong thing. And wrong doesn't mean evil, wicked, and dark. Oh, it certainly can be evil, wicked, and dark. We very much can put something satanic, Satan and his ways, into that number one spot. But do you know, you and I put good things in that spot. We put things given to us by God because we have a tendency to confuse the gift and the giver. And so we'll put good people, good ideas. Hey, this is a good idea for my home. Hey, this is a good idea for our nation. Hey, this is a good idea for our world. We'll put ideas into that spot. And we certainly put things into that spot. Here's the the bottom line. Anything other than God in that spot is the wrong thing. And bad things come from the wrong thing in that spot. And if God didn't tell us this, we'd spend our whole lives moving a multitude of wrong things in and out of that spot. Well, what makes them wrong? Ultimately, whatever resides in that spot is your God. That is what, why do we move stuff there? Because I believe this is going to give me life. This is going to give me happiness. This is going to make me strong. This is going to make me able. This is going to give me peace. This is going to give me meaning and purpose. We, we look to that and we hold on. This is going to give me my, my life. And we make it our God. The only problem is it's not God. That makes it a false God. And it's just as simple as this. False doesn't work. Ever. False doesn't work. Listen, false can't give you life and life eternal. God can. False can't cover your sin, forgive your sin. God can. False can't make you righteous. God can. False can't give you, now follow me here, the whole sentence. False can't give you meaning, purpose, strength, revenge, ability, permanently. That's the operative word, permanently. There's a reason we put things into the number one spot. Because for a moment, they work. 
For a moment, they do give me power. For a moment, they do give me satisfaction. For a moment, they do give me love and just keep filling in the bank. For a moment, they work, but it never works permanently. Only God works permanently. Folks, I can go on and on. Y'all get what I'm saying here? Only, only what's real works. False doesn't. So it's just as simple as this. Make God number one in your life. Y'all ready to go home? You know, it's just, boy, if it was just that easy, right? If I could, gosh, I've thought, if I could just do this one time and be done. <laughs> it, it's an ongoing situation. You know, my, my assumption is that the, the great majority of us in here or, or watching online right now do want God in the number one spot. I, I'm, I'm here today because I want God in the number one spot. So then becomes the question, is he? And, and here's our problem. We're really fluent at lying to ourselves. Or we're just obtuse. And so I can be telling myself that God's in the number one spot and, he, and he's nowhere near it. So the, the real question is not saying God's number one in my life or putting that in a frame and hanging it somewhere in our home. God's number one here. Okay, that's good, but how do we know? How do we measure that statement? And I think we've got a couple stories in the Bible that will give us really very simple tools to, to measure that. I mean, like literally by 6 o'clock today, if you give any effort at all, maybe 2 o'clock today, you can know what's in the number one spot in your life definitively. So let's look at these stories. The first one's in Genesis. Genesis is just right before Exodus, so pretty easy to get to. Genesis 22, this is a story of Abraham and Isaac. I think it's a a pretty well-known story in the Bible. Genesis 22, and let's look at verse 1, or I'll begin in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Well, let that sink in. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Hey, what's, going, what's God doing? He's going right to the heart of what's in our heart. Now, be clear. I don't see anywhere here where Abraham is accused of having the wrong thing in the number one spot. He's accused of having Isaac. in the. There's no accusation of that, but there is going to be a test. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And, boy, this is a hard, one of the hardest lines in the whole Bible. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose... Early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And I I tell you what here, folks, what Abraham says here is just incredible faith. God has asked something horrific. 
God has asked something horrific, confusing, scary. And he says, God will provide. I don't understand what we're doing here. I don't understand why God asked this. I don't like what God has asked, but, but God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld, that's an operative word there, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, folks, this story, the one I'm going to read next, my goal today is not to teach on these stories. It's to, it's to teach on that one command. There's a lot in this story. There's a lot to unwrap and, and understand. It's rich. This is a rich passage. But I do want to say two quick things about this passage. One, so the New Testament is what makes really clear that you and I worship a really difficult concept to grasp. We worship the triune Godhead. One God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God, that God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's made really clear in the New Testament, but it is all throughout the Old Testament. And here's a place that we see that. Look at verse 12 there. You, you've got the angel of the Lord. Now, that's two people, right? You know, I, I mean, if, if there's the assistant of Randy. Okay, there's Randy and there's Randy's assistant. Yeah, are you with me? Are you tracking on the grammar there? We've got the angel of the Lord. Now, when you and I hear the word angel, what do we think of? An angelic being of some sorts, right? May not fully know what that looks like, but I've got ideas in my mind. And so an angel pops into my mind. But the word angel literally means messenger. When you see that word there, it's a messenger of the Lord. So two people, there's a messenger and there's the Lord. And this is a test that God is giving, right? But look at the end of verse 12. It says, you've not withheld your only son from who? The Lord? From me. Most Bible scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate, that means before flesh, before Christmas, that this is Jesus. It's Jesus giving this test. Great, great picture there of kind of a, I guess you may say an introduction to, to the Holy Trinity. The other thing that has to be addressed in this is the whole concept of God asking for a child's sacrifice. That should weird you out. That, that should make you a bit uncomfortable. So just a couple quick things. I'm not giving a full explanation. Number one, this is the only place in the whole Bible that God asks that. Number two, God immediately stopped it, right? He, he did not let that go on. And number three, he gives dozens of commands about don't ever sacrifice your children. So I could explain more. There'd be some questions around that, but I'm just going to leave it there for today. So now let's go back to God tested Abraham. You know why? Because it's what God does. God tested Abraham, whom he loved, and God tests you and me. He tested then, 
He tests now. I would love to tell you, get prepared. There's just one test, and it'll happen at this age, and we pass it, and we're good to go, right? I I don't know when the tests come. I know that there's plenty. Probably the safest way to live is to treat absolutely everything you're going through as a test to what's number one in your life. You want to live safe? Treat everything as a test. Now, what's what's God doing here? Why is God testing? Imagine you're having a cup of coffee with God. And you're sitting there. I would would want to. I would imagine you'd want to tell God how much you love him. God, I love you. You're number one in my life. You're, You're the center of everything. And God would say, thank you, man. That's awesome. I love you too. Hey, let's take your phrase that that I'm number one in your life and let's measure that. By the way, God's love was measured, right? His love was measured at the cross. We we measure love. We we put that to the test. So I've said, hey God, you're number one. And God says, awesome. Let's let's measure that. Let's put that statement to the test. And God begins to hone in then on what's going on in our heart because God knows the competitors. In our heart, because God knows every thought I have, He knows every desire I have. Listen, God knows you better than you know you. Well, then why do I need a test if He already knows? Oh, the the test is for you. This isn't for Him to discover something. The, 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 The test is for you so that you can celebrate and grow. Or so that you can course correct and change. God brings us through a test to show us what is really going on when we say that he's number one in our hearts. And wow, did Abraham pass the test? You know, I, I, I think he says two things there that, 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 that stunned me. You know, they said, hey, where are we going? And he says, we're going over there to do what? Sacrifice? No, we're going over there to worship. Again, if we just treated every moment, my response to somebody, my handling of a situation, hey, this is an act of worship. I'm declaring, I'm living, I'm showing what it looks like when God holds the number one spot. We we just treat everything like a test. We treat everything as worship. But then Abraham, God gives gives him this horrific request, this scary request, what had to be very hard to understand, very hard to swallow. And the next line says, early the next morning. I've always been stunned by that early. I I would have said, hey, God, could I pray about this for a little bit? By the way, who would I be praying to since God's already told me what he wanted? (laughs) Isn't it amazing how God tells us stuff and we think we need to go home and pray about it? Early the next morning. I'd have been, I think, trying to find out what I do to buy some time. Maybe see if God's going to change his mind. (laughs) Hey, God, maybe I misunderstood early. You know what? That's a real picture of what it looks like to put God first. Putting God first means he's first. There's no second. There's no third. There's no fourth. He's first. And first means immediate. First means now. First means you can see it always, right now, Early the next morning, what a picture of worship, what a picture of love, what a picture of obedience, what a picture of putting God first in a moment that had to be hard. 
So, so Abraham passes the test. You know, A, there's a joy in passing, right? You know what when we pass happens? We're motivated. We're motivated to go further. I mean, we all love to succeed, and we all like to back away from failure. But man, when I succeed, that motivates me to go even further. So even though God's not accused him of this, man, when we put the test out there, and God gets to communicate what he's seen in Abraham, how much more do you think that motivates Abraham? It is good, it is safe, it is right to love God, to, to be in awe of him. So Abraham passed. Let's go to another story, Mark 10. I'm guessing you can guess that if I just showed you a, a passing test, we're now going to look at a what? A failing test. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 Look at verse 17. Mark 10, verse 17. Your title of your... If you've got a Bible that puts titles above it or out to side, probably says the rich young man. This is a rich young man that as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? A lot of teaching was done that day with questions. Jesus isn't just being vague here. No, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Do those sound familiar? I, they should because I just read them like 10 minutes ago, right? That, that, that's the 10 commandments. But it's not all 10 commandments. What does he quote? Six commands that all have to do with navigating this relationship. He didn't mention any commandment this way. He didn't mention any of the first four that are about his relationship with God. I wonder if Jesus knows where he's going. Let's let's continue to read here. And he said to him, this is the rich young ruler, he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept... From my youth. Now, if I'm Jesus, and you probably should write down your heart, say, Thank you, God, that Randy's not Jesus. I do. But if I'm Jesus, I'm calling the guy out right here, right? He just said, I've obeyed all those commands. If I'm Jesus, I'm going, No, you haven't. Oh my gosh, you've disobeyed every single one of them more times than you can count. Just as has everybody listening. Not might be a few people in the garden. I've never murdered anybody, I've never committed adultery. Oh, you're not familiar with Jesus' definition of adultery and murder? You might want to swing over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following. And what we see Jesus teach there is the guilt of murder and adultery begins in my heart. Obviously, there's a different, con- a different consequence if I murder somebody in my heart and if I murder them out in life, right? Different consequences, yes, but the guilt of that begins in my heart. And so if I'm Jesus, this this guy just said, I've obeyed all these commands. No, you have not. Now, that's what, knowing what I feel like Jesus should have said is so stunning what he actually happens next. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, what does your translation say? Yeah, mine says that too. Now, Jesus, you know this guy just like, what is this, self-righteous or is this arrogance? Maybe Jesus just looks at you and me, looks at this guy, and knows our failure more than we know our failure, right? And says, you know, I I respect, I appreciate what you want to be, what you're trying to be. 
I, I, I see where you're trying to get. So out of love, understand that's what it's operating out of. Out of love, let's, let's figure out where we are. I love what you're trying to get to, but let's see where we really are in that. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now remember, this guy came running. Said running, didn't it? He came running up to, he's running to Jesus. He's pursuing God. But look how it ends. Disheartened by the saying, he went away. He left, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's, that's obviously not passing the test, right? Folks, do you realize this guy represents almost every one of us in here? This is not a bad person. This is a guy who will say, God is number one in my heart. And he's going to point to his church attendance. He's going to point to his morality. While I think he misses it on the sin in his life, I do think he probably lived a very moral life. I do think to the watching neighbors and friends and other church members, this guy's, this guy's a moral person. He, he obeys the law. And he's successful. You know, this is, this is the guy, we, you know, we have him come and speak to us and give us the keys to success. And when he gets up, you know what he's going to say? Let me tell you what I found to be the most important thing to being successful. You've got to have your priorities right. You've got to put God first. I bet everything I have to say that that guy would say the most important thing you can do in life is put God first. And again, he'd, he'd have things, at least as you and I could see, he'd have things he'd point to that proves he's put God first. So God's going to say, hey, let's celebrate that or let's do a course correction. And God puts that to the test. And just like Jesus did with Abraham, moved by love, Jesus now does with this guy. Man, God hones right in. He knows whether I'm lying to myself or I'm just that obtuse to what I'm really doing. He knows, and Jesus says, give me the money. And I know some of us get a little squeamish when we hear the word money in church. You do know this has nothing to do with money. Jesus doesn't need his money there. Jesus doesn't need our money now. Go ahead, give Jesus a billion dollars. You've not enriched him or enabled him any more than if you gave him a penny. He does not need your money. This isn't about money. It is totally about what's going on in your heart. And boy, it becomes abundantly clear. For him, it was money. There's the possibility with Abraham, he wasn't accused of this, but there's the possibility with Abraham that, hey, we know that Isaac is there. Gosh, folks, it can be money, it can be a person, it can be things I have and enjoy, it, it can be myself, my gifts and abilities, what, you know, what I want people to think about me. It, it can be a job, it can be a hobby. There's so many things that we can put there. And in tests, God will hone in on the competitor. So how do I know? 
I don't know if Abraham was thinking about this before the test. This guy in Mark 10 certainly wasn't thinking about this for the test and probably would say God's number one in his heart, just like most of us would want to say. So how do I know? Two quick things. Number one, ask somebody. And actually, I I would say ask two to three people because some of us, we got some people to ask. I mean, they're idiots and they're just going to give a dumb answer, right? So get two or three people to weigh on this. But ask somebody, hey, what do you think is most important in my life? As you watch me, hear me, are around me, what do you observe is the most important thing in my life? And when they give you an answer, don't argue with them about what they should have said. You asked what they observe. They're giving you... And Hey, folks, let's be honest. I bet all of us have lots of people in our lives who don't even know that we believe in God. So maybe just go to the people who think you do. <laughs> hey, you know, even from them. If they observe it, wouldn't you say there's a good chance God observes it? So I'd want to hear from people around me. You're around me all the time. You hear me, watch me, see me. What do you think is most important? You know, it's a little bit squeamish to ask that question of people, right? I don't know. If, do you want to hear the answer? Second thing, maybe now we ask ourselves the question, can I give this to God? Can I, you say, give what to God? Well, you, you got to do an inventory, right? You, gotta do, you don't have to do an inventory of every single thing in your life. Obviously, start with the big things, the important things, the things you know your heart and mind is centered around. Can I give my money to God? Can I give my family to God? Can I give my house to God? Can I give this idea to God? Because I'm banking everything on this idea. Can I give my job to God? Can I give my abilities to God? Now, I said this a moment ago, and I think it would be true of this guy. We're very fluent at lying to ourselves or obtuse, one or the other. And so I think when I ask myself, can I give this to God? You know, I'm in a hurry. I want to get to lunch. I'm just going to say yes and move on. Aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. I give that to God. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. So maybe we put that under the fire a little bit more. And about every one of those things, could I pray this? God, if I can't or won't use fill in the blank, my child, my money, this relationship, this desire for a relationship, this, this thing, this idea. If I can't or won't use this to serve you, to love you, to worship you, Take it from me. That is an uncomfortable prayer. We're not even saying that that thing is number one in your life. But if it's important to you, if you use it a lot, you do a lot with it to, have, to actually pray, God, take it from me. Do you trust God with that prayer? You know, if you find something, a person, a place, an idea where it's hard to trust God with that prayer, you just found your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the prayer of David in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. 
that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Oh, Lord, I, I, I believe I want, I believe all of us want, and I want, I want a heart that is so in awe of you, you, you are always in the number one spot. But, Lord, I know myself. I know what your scriptures teach. So I ask for the courage and the faith. I ask for the motivation for myself, for all of us, to ask those questions this week to ask those questions periodically, to want to be in tune with what's really going on in my heart. You showed us today, Lord, you showed us probably a person on the outside, everybody would say is very moral, very godly, God's number one in his life, and and you, you weren't even close to being number one in his life. Unite my heart completely and totally around you. And Lord, I thank you that if, if I need to make a course correction, that I do that with your grace. I do that with your forgiveness. You're a patient and merciful God. Thank you. Nothing before you. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.